Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Well, first, let me thank uh, Aiken Gump for giving us this beautiful day. I didn't realize Aiken was that powerful uh, in this beautiful venue. Um, but it's really, uh, it's fabulous to be here. And let's see, Mungru is here. There she is. Thank you for, for helping arrange this. Um, I love when, uh, when friends write um, books that I love to read. And in this case, Wynne Lord has written um, this terrific book, Kissinger on Kissinger, uh, Reflections on Diplomacy, Grand Strategy, and Leadership. It, you know, it's one of the great parts of my job that I get to read the books that I get to then talk about with the authors. And in this case, it really took us back, it takes me back to what I would call a better time when we really had a strategy, when we had people who, who talked about U.S.-China relations in a much more nuanced and, and um, compelling way. And the book, even though it goes way beyond China and talks about the Mideast and talks about the national, how the National Security Council was, was formed and kind of the way that worked, um, today's focus is going to be very much on, um, on um, just the China portion, the opening. Um, you've got Wynn's bio. and. You know, would it be fair to call you the zealot of U.S.-China relations? <laughs> You've been there for, for every, everything, you know, there at the, with Secretary Kissinger at the very beginning. You want to tell the story of how you went to the front of, oh, I'll leave that one. Well, we can come back we to it, sure. We can come back yes, to that. Okay. But then, um, obviously, as ambassador to China, as, as assistant secretary of state, as um, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, he has, at every kind of critical juncture, been kind of playing a role in, in helping Americans understand um, China and understand U.S.-China relations. Uh, so rather than, so the book is, and it's a wonderful read, and it, it is for sale outside, and we will have the author for a few minutes autographing them when we're done. So um, I urge everyone to, to purchase it. Um, we'll do today just as questions and answers with no, with no, no speech. Um, because this is one of my oldest friends around. So first, let me ask the simple question, which is, why this book and why now? First, a few grace notes. I want to thank you, Steve, for hosting this. Uh, Steve and I go back several decades, ever since I was ambassador in China, and he was stationed there. And as my doubles partner in tennis, he was my mentor. And as my singles opponent in tennis, he was my tour mentor. Uh, this guy was really good in tennis and a really good friend as well and dynamic leader of this organization. More broadly, I do want to thank the National Committee, uh, which has done more than any other organization to promote the non-governmental private exchanges between China and the United States. And no one has been more central to the entire arc of the National Committee than Jan Barris, who's also here today, who has done such a fabulous job. Our relationship with China has swung between extremes at times, and one of the real glue for the relationship and buffer against the bad times has been private exchanges, and the National Committee has been at the center of that going all the way back to and before uh, ping-pong diplomacy. I cannot think of a time where these kind of exchanges are under more threat and are more needed than they are right now, because we are, and we'll probably get into this, I think at the most serious uh, juncture of U.S.-China relations, uh, certainly since Tiananmen Square, but probably since the 1970s. Now, to get to your question, I don't leave the audience thinking I avoid questions. I do want to make those sincere remarks. <clears throat> Kissinger has never done an oral history. A few years ago, I sat down with a colleague to interview other participants in the major events in this book. China, Russia, Soviet Union, and Vietnam, uh, sort of video panels. When we got through, I thought it would be a good idea to get Henry's perspective, looking back almost half a century in a strategic uh, way, not timeline way, in terms of the events. 
I had to talk him into it, but he thought it would be one interview where it was so good, and even he recognized we just barely scratched the surface, that we did several more, and then we cleaned up the transcript, which is the basis of this book. But we had to do very little. Anybody speaking spontaneously about events five decades old uh, would be remarkable to be this articulate. This guy is in his 90s when he did it. And it's full of not only strategic uh, approach, but tactical decisions, personal portraits of other leaders. Uh, and it also addresses generic topics, which I teased him out on while I had the opportunity, <coughs> namely the need for strategy and foreign policy. What are the qualities you look for in a strong leader? How do you organize the government for foreign policy? And what is the best way to negotiate? So we have both perspective on these events uh, in the 1970s and some, I think, lasting principles for foreign policy. So I think uh, it would be useful, certainly to younger generations, for whom much of this is ancient history. Uh, older generations, it's a lot easier to read 150 pages than it is a thousand page memoir, <clears throat> and for future diplomats and historians. So, so that was the purpose of the book. And you were work with probably, you worked with Secretary Kissinger as closely as any person. What was it like to kind of, I mean, probably one of the greatest diplomats of the 20th century, yeah. you know, accomplished an extraordinary amount in his eight years in, in public service. By the way, I want to explain how we're going to get this book to be even a better seller than I think it might be. <clears throat> the title was Kissinger on Kissinger. <clears throat> we sent out a press release before publication, and one person who got it was Tom Brokaw. He got it on a small iPhone, which sort of truncated the last two letters of the title. So Tom raced out to get several copies of what he thought was going to be Kissinger on Kissing. <laughs> <laughs> So we're thinking of maybe using that title uh, for a future edition. Uh, in my foreword to the book, I do give my perspectives on Kissinger, both his place in history, but more importantly, uh, his persona. And I describe working for him as the agony and the ecstasy. Uh, perhaps a good way to illustrate that is a story that some of you may have heard. It has the virtue of being almost true. <clears throat> I used to write speeches for Kissinger, so he would give me a topic, call me in, <coughs> and look at my first draft, <coughs> and he'd say, is this the best you can do? And I said, Henry, I thought so, but let me take another whack at it. Sent him another draft a couple of days later, he'd call me in later and said, you sure it's the best you can do? And I said, Henry, uh, I think so, but I'll try it. Well, anyway, this went on for six drafts, and I'm really getting annoyed. So I finally go in on the seventh draft when he asked that question again. I said, Henry, I've tweaked every paragraph. I've looked at every semicolon. I cannot improve this speech any further. So Henry smiled, looked at me, and said, in that case, now I'll read it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a serious point to that story. He really would demand the best of you. He knew I could write, so he would demand the best of my writing. If someone on his staff was good at something else but not writing, he wouldn't push them. So he stretched me, he stretched my nerves, he stretched my patience, but he stretched my capabilities. And it was tough working for him, countless lost anniversaries, birthdays, 100-hour weeks. He'd always uh, call me up to rework a speech just before my favorite football team would kick off for a key game. <laughs> so I would quit about once a week, but I'll be ever grateful to him for what he did, obviously for my career, and for the dramatic events, but for the stretching of my capabilities. I'll make one other point about him, about his demeanor. <clears throat> he has a very good sense of humor, and he would lighten things when they were in a crisis, uh, but he could get really upset over smaller things. So a good example of the former was the Middle East war broke out, as we point out in this book, uh, and right in the middle of Yom Kippur emergency and calling everyone, and he's sitting coolly writing a speech for the United Nations the next day at the same time. But in contrast to that, in terms of smaller events, when we were on a secret trip to China, flying on a Pakistani plane, and Steve has forced me to tell this story, uh, as we got close to the Chinese border, no American had been in China for 22 years, no American official. 
So I went to the front of the plane. Henry was in the back, and so I was in the China uh, airspace before he was, and I was the first <laughs> American official. But on that plane, you would think he was worried about dealing with Zhou Enlai, this geopolitical earthquake, the James Bond dimensions of a secret trip. No, no, no. He was really upset because his staff assistant didn't pack any shirts for him. So he was ranting and raving. John Holdridge was very key to the opening of China on his staff, lent him his shirt. John's about six foot three, so Henry went around looking like a penguin. <laughs> and I, of course, said to Henry, you know, you haven't even negotiated with the Chinese yet, and you've already lost your shirt. <laughs> then it turned out his shirt had a label that said, made in Taiwan. <laughs> so in any event, we had some tense times, but he could handle those very well. It was just some of the smaller stuff that got him upset. Speaking of, of things that may have gotten him upset, there's a, in the very beginning of the book, there's a great picture of, uh, of Mao and Zhou Enlai and Nancy Tong and Wang Hairong and Nixon Kissinger and you. Who required that you be deleted from that photo? Uh, <clears throat> Nixon and Kissinger. The story is the following. As all of you are aware, Nixon liked to run foreign policy out of the White House with his national security advisor, Kissinger. So when we landed on the Nixon trip in 72, within an hour, Joe and Lai came back to the guest house and said the chairman wanted to see uh, Nixon right away. This was very unusual. Usually the chairman would put his imprimatur at the end of the visit. But this was a good sign because he was saying right up front to his people, to his cadres, to the world that he approved of this visit. He asked Henry to go along, but not the Secretary of State. Henry, in turn, asked me to go along because I'd been in charge of the president's briefing books, had been on the secret trip, and also he wanted a note taker so he could focus on the meeting. At the end of the meeting, Nixon and Kissinger turned to Joe and Lai and said, Mr. Lord was never at this meeting. It's humiliating enough for the Secretary of State to miss out on this, but to have a 30-year-old punk sit in as well <laughs> is just too much. So I was cut out of the picture, I was cut out of the communique, and nobody, with a possible exception of my wife, who's from Shanghai, knew for years that I was in this meeting. Flash forward a couple of years, and Joe and I personally presented me with the photo that's in the book, which is the official photo of the meeting, which in fact did include me. <laughs> How did you guys manage to go to a meeting with Mao without the Secretary of State knowing? Very easily. <laughs> no, well, he knew about it afterwards, that's for sure. I, nobody's proud of this, by the way. And in fairness, Nixon somewhat naively thought there might be a second meeting with Mao, which probably would never happen, and he would have included uh, Rogers in that. But we just, uh, we were staying in, I think, in different guest house, and we just sped off in a motorcade. And so you went from the state guest house to Zhongnan House, that's right. where Mao that's was. That's correct. Hmm. What are the lessons in the book for today's U.S.-China relations? I think to think strategically and not to react impulsively or to discrete events. That's true in foreign policy in general, where you want a strategic approach. You don't always need the grand strategy that I think comes through in this book. Uh, I won't get into detail now. I'm going to focus on China. But you need some sense of what your longer-term goals are and the impact on the other side and how you can make it a win-win negotiation. Uh, and you can't just uh, try to grab the current headlines, particularly with a phony deal and so on. So, for example, I think this administration, uh, I will give them credit <coughs> for recognizing that we have a new uh, competition with China that's taken a new turn. And I stress competition, not enmity, not containment, not coupling, decoupling. Uh, we have the assets and we should have the self-confidence if we can get our act together to compete with the Chinese. So the fact that we have serious new challenges because of China's policies uh, and some of our own mistakes, uh, I think the administration deserves credit and they've gotten tough in principle on some of the economic uh, protectionism and mercantilism of the Chinese. But that's not enough of a policy in itself. And we can get into that particular issue in more mm -hmm. detail. <clears throat> what I think you need with the Chinese, what I think is missing from this administration, are three key components of dealing with China. First, get your act together at home. With our polarization and division, we're giving democracy a bad name. 
we'll rob ourselves of soft power and as an idea we can hardly be effective criticizing others, although Trump doesn't anyway because he likes dictators, not Democrats. But nevertheless, get our act together in terms of a functioning society so we can invest in the future, infrastructure, education, energy, uh, advanced technology. Uh, and so that's the first way to deal with China is to be able to compete. Secondly, you need friends and allies. Many of them are concerned about Chinese policies. It'd be much more effective, for example, in the trade war if you got everyone together instead of picking fights with your allies in order to have more leverage with Beijing. And thirdly, multilateral institutions can't take the place of American action or unilateral or sovereignty, but it certainly can su supplant it, so supplement it, not supplant it. Uh, and by pulling out of the climate accord, pulling out of the Iran deal, and above all, pulling out of Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is an important economic and geopolitical initiative to deal with China as well as to maintain our presence in Asia, we've lost that effective tool as well. So uh, I think these three components are all missing from our policy toward China, and that's what I hope we can get back to. Didn't both candidates in the election support withdrawing from TPP? Yes. Uh, I, uh, so isn't that kind of the will of the people, so to speak? We are in a democracy. Maybe it's better for the majority, but it's not what the people chose. Well, first of all, Hillary Clinton secretly thought it was a terrific agreement. She called it the gold standard before the campaign. So she caved in on that, and she did not wreak everlasting glory because of it. It's not the reason the campaign turned, obviously. But you make an important point. I think ever since 2008, which was a turning point, that there's been a tremendous impact, not only in China's policy, but our own. Because of the financial crisis, uh, Americans began to react to globalization and to free trade generally and to multilateral approaches. <clears throat> and this was reflected in their campaign because the Democrats are always somewhat more protectionist usually than Republicans anyway. But this was such a great deal in terms of economics as well as geopolitics that it should have overridden that. And of course it was an Obama initiative. Uh, so I do think the campaign reflected, and obviously Trump's election reflected this populist resentment about globalization in general. And we began to blame globalization and the Chinese, although they have been predatory in economics, for many of our own problems and inability to deal with what we should be doing. So I, I agree it's a general uh, phenomenon that has gripped us. Could you, in the book, the first page of the, the first sentence of the book is statesmanship requires both the vision to establish long-term goals and the courage to make the often harrowing decisions to move towards them. Could you make the argument that this administration is willing to kind of incur enormous costs, make these harrowing decisions in order to shake up this U.S.-China relationship, to kind of change the basis upon which it operates? Well, I did give credit already to them recognizing the problem and trying to get the Chinese attention and being tougher on trade. So you can make that narrow case. But first of all, the real issue is going to be some of the technology issues, which I think they're trying to get at as well, but it's going to be particularly tough for the Chinese. The forced transfer of technology, subsidies to Chinese industry, uh, China's plans to dominate future technological areas and so on. And we've got to get some of that and subsidies and so on uh, beyond just tariffs, which uh, Trump seems to uh, be fixated with. Uh, I'm more worried about a phony deal uh, in which Trump will once again, like with North Korea and elsewhere, proclaim victory over something that uh, isn't really that substantive. That may be true of the uh, Mexico-U.S. agreement uh, recently. So yes, he gets credit for getting attention, but it didn't require great courage because there's a gathering mood in this country, bipartisan, uh, that China has to be dealt with more firmly. Uh, we should guard against overreaction and, and sliding into a Cold War. But if there's a, the only thing about which this country seemed to be united upon now is that we've got a real problem with China. So I, I don't think it took that much courage, and I don't think there's much strategy behind it, Frank. Yeah. You're, you occupied the august position as head of policy planning as George Kennan and some of the great 
thinkers in, in, US, in the U.S. <clears throat> foreign policy establishment. What do you think of the comment by uh, head of policy planning Skinner, who in an interview with another of your successors, Anne-Marie Slaughter, said it is the first time that we have had a great power competitor that is not Caucasian. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how Japan fits into that sentence, <laughs> among other things. But there's a racial tinge to it, which is typical of this administration. I don't want to get this into an overly political meeting, but uh, uh, I, I do think it sort of reflects the mindset of some of the people in this administration. So uh, I think it's the wrong way to describe our challenge. Our challenge is how do we reconcile a growing, rising power with an established power? Uh, history has shown it can be done at times, and other times it can't be done. I think we can do it, but again, I get back to what I said earlier, we've got to get our act together. If we, can, if we do, we have tremendous advantages. And so this ought to be framed as a competition we should welcome uh, to enliven us and our competitive uh, instincts, uh, not some overwhelming racial uh, civilization of clash. You, you talked about the dangers of overreaction yeah. and kind of um, you were a signatory to the report uh, called Constructive Vigilance, and one of your co-authors, Susan Shirk, dissented, right. felt that the remedy was worse than the disease, that the overreaction and the kind of the, the, the ethnic profiling that's going to go on, and it's turned out has gone on since that report was written, uh, was much worse than the Chinese influence, which really it exists, but it's basically to shape America's view of China, not to shape the electoral landscape the way the Russians did. Do you regret not having dissented? Absolutely not, and I regret she dissented. Uh, I have great respect for her. <clears throat> but we have a problem with Chinese influence, number one. And number two, the report is littered with caveats saying, don't overreact, don't profile the Chinese, uh, be careful, be selective, don't have a across-the-board sledgehammer, and above all, watch out for racial profiling. So her dissent was totally unnecessary. I have great respect for her, and it wasn't quite as dramatic as you make it. She, she warned against the dangers, but she didn't dismiss She, she agreed the with whole. the factual basis, she said, but the, re, the risk of overreaction, and I would argue the report came out, what, about six months ago, yeah. roughly? Have we seen an overreaction? Uh, there's a danger of that, but I don't think Have, so. Let's, you don't think we've seen well, it? Well, look. Prosecutions of Chinese Americans, well, expelling Chinese from research, an NIH um, kind of letter which says, go reevaluate all of the deal, all the people who are Chinese mm -hmm. in your system, which however many thousands of NIH grantees there are, that's not an overreaction. No, that, that is a potential overreaction if it's carried forward, as well as discouraging Chinese students. These are in our self-interest. But just like the overall debate about dealing with China, everyone, a lot of people focus on overreaction, which we should, but it dismisses the fact that what are we reacting to? And I would argue, and we can get back in more detail about the influence issue, but more generally, uh, starting in 2008, but much more under Xi, the Chinese have been more aggressive overseas, whether it's the East and South China Seas or squeezing Taiwan and now squeezing Hong Kong or their military buildup. They've been mercantilistic and predatory uh, and protectionist on economics and ripping us off. Uh, they have tried to uh, squash any element of dissent in China. They've stepped up repression. And of course, the Uyghur situation in Xinjiang is particularly horrific. They've reneged on. Uh, commitments, whether it's uh, WTO or dealing with cyber theft, they promised Obama, or promising not to militarize the islands in the South China Sea. So China has become more threatening to us. I repeat, they should not be considered an enemy. We shouldn't try to contain them. We should compete effectively and seek our cooperation where we can. So let's, as we talk about the dangers of overreaction, whether it's on influence in our society or the relationship in general, let's not dwell so much on it that we forget what we're reacting to. Now, to get back to the influence, I am concerned about 
losing Chinese students, losing Chinese scientists. Uh, Huawei, I yield to the experts, so much is sensitive about that, but I have the impression we're overreacting to that. There are some legitimate security concerns technologically. I think maybe the British have the right approach, but I'm going to cop out because I don't know enough about this, just how much threat there is. I don't have the classified information. But the British approach is its potential problems. Let's look at each one and decide which is a real security problem and which isn't, as opposed to, the, I think, seems to be an overreaction to sweep out Huawei in general. But the fact is there are Chinese students in this country who report on other Chinese students. Uh, there are funding of uh, institutions and foundations and universities and think tanks that are not transparent. There is a media presence here that's not reciprocated in China. There's a lot of stuff going on here that goes beyond legitimate public diplomacy and it's either coercive, corrupt, or covert that I do think we have to respond to, but not overreact. It's a constant balancing act. So I, to get back to Susan, I, I understand what she was saying, but I thought it was unnecessary because the report is very clear that we shouldn't go too far, and she didn't throw out the whole report. She acknowledged no, the problem. She, she said there's a factual basis, but yeah. I mean the problem I had with the report was distinguishing between normal activities and what you say are the covert and the insidious activities, yeah. which are. But we're very careful to distinguish it. I, I uh, urge uh, everyone to, to get this report and see who's right, all in Zalora. We'll settle it on the tennis court. The, the, <laughs> no, we won't because he'll beat me on the tennis the, court. The, um, you know, the, another report. No, the Chinese are doing a lot of unpleasant things in our society. You know, they're, they're not like the Soviets trying to hack our elections, although they had the ability to do it. Right. And there are rumors, I have no idea whether they're true, that they're already doing that in Taiwan. I have no way of knowing. But you talk, it's not just an American problem. You go to Australia where they bought politicians. You go to New Zealand where someone who's critical of China has her computer stolen and her office ransacked. Some nasty things are going on in our society. We shouldn't overreact, but we can't ignore them either. Yeah, I think the question becomes when you're looking at 375,000 students, you know, you try and quantify what the risk really is. Is it 75 students? Is it 750? Is it 7,500? No, I agree with that, and, but we don't, that we don't even The problem is what we're doing today is we're casting a very wide net of suspicion on people who are just here doing the right thing for American society, in fact. No, I, and well, we're discouraging them. I've seen, you know, you know, I've seen, you know, I'm very interested in Parkinson's research because family member was, was, uh, inflicted with it and it's a terrible disease and a Chinese scientist was doing research on Parkinson's um, and was his lab was closed and the argument was made that he had not fully disclosed that NIH that when he applied for the grant that he was receiving money from China also so I said oh alright he should that's not right after one 60 seconds of research, I googled him and saw the articles he'd written. The first thing he says is, I'm funded by the Chinese government. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's, it's troubling. Are we seeing this in universities? And the costs that America is going to pay are probably going to exceed the benefits that we receive. Should we stop spying? Absolutely. But at what cost to American society? Well, look, I. Agreeing with you, I already have agreed with you on the dangers of overreaction, and I, <clears throat> I will repeat that. But it's like any other complex question. If you just spend all your time on that, you forget what we're reacting to. And I repeat, yep. we have a problem. I also repeat, I agree with you, particularly with students and scientists and maybe cutting off technology and so on, uh, that was a real danger of overreacting, not only in profiling people, but hurting our own self-interest in of course, terms of yeah. talent and advancement. Why do you think there's been, you know, again, in the 40th anniversary from the days when I was in the State Department and helped establish diplomatic relations, why is there so little discussion, and you started during the Vietnam era, why is there so little discussion of the fact that 250, when we established diplomatic relations in the prior four decades, 250,000 American soldiers died in it. The Pacific. And since then, none. 
Is that related to diplomatic relations? And if so, our relationship with China, and if so, why is there so little discussion of that, that we've basically had peace in Asia since then? It's worse than that, Steve. It's not only a little discussion. The conventional wisdom now in many quarters is that what we were trying to do with China all these years was a mistake. Everyone is saying, you know, look, this China monster we created, we should have had a different policy. Number one, what different policy? You've got to try to contain them. It's impossible in terms of other countries, in terms of China's growth, and in terms of our own self-interest. But secondly, as you've just pointed out, a lot of good was achieved over these decades in dealing with China. Stability in Asia compared to what it would be if we were facing off against one-fifth of the world's people. Uh, tremendous economic benefits. Uh, China's moved positively in certain areas like non-proliferation. There's a whole litany of things. They've uh, overthrown or disregarded some international commitments, but they've also fulfilled others. So China's done some good things as well as bad things. A lot of it's in our self-interest. And the concomitant uh, argument is that we were naive thinking they were going to become a democracy overnight, so therefore we were fools. A lot of us were more optimistic that, particularly after Tiananmen, when there were demonstrations in 250 cities, not just Beijing, and from all walks of life, not just students, that this would be a turning point. And I was lucky to be ambassador just before then when there was tremendous openness in relative terms in terms of discussing political reforms. My wife and I would host salons with Chinese dissidents and reformers and party officials and government officials at the same time. You remember, Steve. Sure. It was, I'm not saying it was a Jeffersonian democracy, but compared to today, it was really quite open. So many of us thought they were going to head in a more positive direction, both in terms of uh, world order and in terms of political system at home. But no one thought this was going to happen overnight. We did hedge with military capability and allies, and we're always ready for a, a different turn. So this revisionist history that now that China's more threatening and more competitive, it's because we were stupid or naive, I, I totally reject. So it's not just that we don't discuss right. the benefits, including stability in the region, it's, it's turned on its head in many quarters. Yeah, and I would say the same of the, you know, in other words, another of the reports you signed off on, it, you know, talks about, you know, the economic policy. and. There's discussion of bilateral trade deficits. They, it's nonsense. You know, nonsense that bilateral trade deficits relate to savings deficits. And you know, if you want to have a real metric, use the ratio of, of current account surplus to GDP, where China has actually improved enormously. Ten years ago, 10% down to 1% today. Well, yes and no. Yes, I agree that fixation on trade balances and Trump's total ignorance about what tariffs do and what balance of trade means and so on uh, is way off, way off base. I do have to admit, when you have a deficit of over a billion dollars a day, it sort of gets your attention, you know, when it's that extreme. Don't have a tax cut. Save money. Change your pension. No, I don't disagree with that. I'm just saying it's somewhat understandable when it's that huge a deficit that people pay attention to it. <clears throat> But I agree, compared to other problems, whether it's American investment in China or, or before, not so much now, the currency issue, and now the forced technology issue, these are much more important than trade balances. Mm -hmm. The forced technology issue, um, are there a lot of examples of companies unwilling, unwillingly going to China and having their technology <coughs> transferred? Don't companies make a decision to go to China and transfer that technology. I spent my early years negotiating the valuation of the technology transfer. You negotiated it. It's what you did. Nobody forced you to go to China. So is that issue really as serious as it seems? Well, I mean, <coughs> the Chinese should remove these, these restrictions. But is it really something that rises to the level of breaking a relationship? Well, first of all, there are other aspects like cyber theft, where the Chinese promised to knock it off, and they haven't. Forced technology. I know, but I'm just saying there's other intellectual property problems besides the forced turnover of it that we can't lose sight of. So it's a full court press by the Chinese of either stealing our technology or making a condition of investment. You're right. Companies go in and make this decision. Now, I, I'm not an expert. You follow, I think, the business 
dimension more closely than I do, but I think you would agree that many have become disillusioned and they feel that the Chinese joint venture partners or the government have changed the terms of the deal as they've gone along. Many of them went in there figuring this would happen, but I, I do think it's evolved in a way that they feel is unfair. And because if you look at the business climate now, the business community used to be one of the biggest supporters of U.S.-Chinese relations, and you could always count on it as a ballast in tough times, but it's gotten much more sour. Now, maybe that's their own fault they made stupid decisions, but they claim, the businesses, that it's the Chinese acting unfairly, including on this question. So instead of making, so Apple, let's say, making 11 billion a quarter, they would have made 14 billion if it were fairer. In other words, or General Motors making billions, or Ford making billions, or Caterpillar making billions. In other words, the <coughs> argument is they would have made even more. I, I'm well, first of all, how about Google and Facebook and Twitter absolutely. having a chance to make millions? So yes. it's, you're picking and, up and the And as ones you look at my speeches, there is not a speech that I don't say, yeah. unblock the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, right. Bloomberg, Twitter, right. Facebook, Google, YouTube. Right. So no. we agree. But That's right. No, of course, that's why they're staying is in the there. They're, they may be pissed off, no but they're way? staying in because they're still making some money, but they can make more. You know? Is the U.S. business community afraid to speak out because they're afraid of retaliation from the U.S. government? No, they're afraid of retaliation by the Chinese. They would be supporting the Chinese. They would be, support they'd be arguing the market is more open than the well, administration. Well, they speak out against what they consider unfair practice. No, speak no. out against the U.S. government. Why? In other words, the question that one asks is exactly what, you know, back in 1999, 2000, 2001, when PNTR needed to be passed in order for China to accede to the WTO, for China to be admitted to the WTO, um, the business community pretty much uniformly went into Congress and said, this is good, <coughs> this should be done. And now it doesn't. But the question is, is there part of this afraid that they'll be tweeted at some morning? You know, they'll be attacked the way Harley Davidson was attacked? Well, I think a lot of people are scared of being attacked by Trump, including the entire Republican Party, which has lost its spine. Uh, so this may go for businesses as well. I, I can't yeah. judge. But the fact is that businesses are beginning to relocate out of Vietnam and elsewhere. So the Chinese must be doing something that is really annoying these companies. Well, the tariffs. The tariffs that the U.S. has imposed. In other words, the, the whole fallacy of Well, the of tariffs the, is very recent. This, this movement out of China started well before this latest dust. Well, it was a combination of increased labor. In other words, the, the, where labor was <coughs> an important component of it, right. uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Indonesia, Sri Lanka became a much cheaper destination uh, to do the light industrial stuff. So that already the relocation was occurring, and now the tariffs are creating that. But these companies are not relocating back to the United States, no matter what the administration says. But let's talk about, because you really played an important role in the Shanghai communique, and you know, it was so deftly um, managed during, during that period where, you know, I just wanna, because people forget the precise language, I just wanna, the U.S. acknowledges that all Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Strait maintain that there is but one China and Taiwan is a part of China. The United States government does not challenge that position. Um, is it challenging it now? Have kind of the 47 years of, of this working? Are we past <coughs> that and we're gonna now have real problems in uh, our relations with China because of the Taiwan issue? I just came from a meeting with the number two person in the Chinese cabinet on Taiwan and all their experts, so I can't relate the course of that meeting except to say it was pretty gloomy along with everything else in U.S.-Chinese relations. We have enough problems with China and Taiwan has always been the most sensitive and there is a danger that this could happen. Uh, again, you always try to strike a balance, but I do have to say that I put the blame primarily on the Chinese in this case, in terms of the Taiwan issue. We've got to make sure we don't overreact and sort of break some long-standing commitments, which we haven't done yet, without getting into secrets. I, I mean, I heard a reiteration uh, of three communications, one China kind of thing. So the basic foundation has not been broken, but there is going to be a temptation 
uh, in the administration to go further, and I hope they don't do that, even as we should support Taiwan uh, as a democratic uh, friend. Uh, <clears throat> so, so how do you explain, when you well, say it, that it, it's the fault of the Chinese, then how do you explain the good relations during Mai and Zhou's tenure? Well, first of all, it's the fault of the Chinese. Mai and Zhou, I think, did a good job because he separated out political future uh, from economic uh, intercourse with, with the mainland. So he, he managed to say that I'm not going to, until China looks better domestically and in political terms, we're not going to get close to you in terms of reunification. That doesn't mean we can't, in mutual self-interest, uh, have economic uh, exchanges and tourists and so on. And he did agree to a vague formula about, I won't get into detail now, about the 92 consensus that the Chinese could live with. I blame the Chinese because they're so suspicious of the Democratic People's Party, Tsai Iwan, that they have not given her any breathing space. She's under great pressure from the independent forces in Taiwan, and yet she's consistently maintained the status quo. Uh, she's even talked about a ROC constitution which allows for a one China. She says she won't renege on any agreements. But the Chinese cut off all communication between uh, governments uh, or non-governmental organizations, however you want to put it. They squeezed on tourism. They built up their Taiwan-related military and, and conducted exercises. They're taking away uh, Taiwan's economic partners. They're discouraging tourism, and they're favoring uh, internal uh, KMT uh, forces. Uh, they're harassing Taiwan and international organizations. Uh, the rhetoric has stepped up. So I would put the current tension and, and cross-strait relations primarily at the Chinese uh, doorstep. Now, that does mean I think we can have more <clears throat> cabinet visits. We should maintain defensive arms sales. Uh, we should support Taiwan and international institutions. Cabinet visits? I think economic cabinet, absolutely. We did it with Carla Hills 20 years ago. Carla Hills, chair of your organization, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so she went there as a cabinet officer. Why can't we do that economically? I'm not saying send a defense secretary. I do think we should have cabinet officials go there. So I do think we should s support Taiwan, but at the same time, we should make clear that the fundamental one China policy, the three communiques, as well as the Taiwan Relations Act, remains in force. And I, I think the way to stabilize that situation, it's not going to happen, it's politically impossible, uh, is the responsibility of all three players. I'd like to see China keep emphasizing peaceful solution uh, and at least communicate with Tsai Yuan, because now with the elections coming up, that's impossible. But they should have been able to find some formula they could live with to talk to Taiwan. Uh, I think Taiwan should avoid provocative acts. And I think if they could somehow make a statement that they don't intend to move toward independence and foreseeable future, and they want the status quo, and emphasize that. And then the US should emphasize that we can live with any outcome freely chosen by the two sides and make it clear explicitly that includes reunification as long as it's peaceful. So if, if somehow we, people could convey that we're not against reunification in principle as long as it's peaceful and freely chosen by both sides, Taiwan's not going to rock the boat on independence, and China's not going to be overly aggressive. I would hope we could stabilize that situation, but it's not going to happen. So you're right. There is a danger that this issue, along with all the others in our relationship, could begin to plague us again. I think that analysis is, is good, with the one exception that you, you, you absolve Tsai Ing-wen of any responsibility for not accepting the 92 consensus. That if in her inauguration address she chose to accept the 92 consensus, then it's fairly likely that all of this would not have happened that all of the things you attribute to China, which I view, again, as an overreaction, I think that's right, but because of her political base, she made a decision that she couldn't accept it, and she didn't accept well, it. She threw out and other, she changed the status quo. Well, she, that, that's a fair criticism, and it's, it's a good Beijing talking point as well. And I do think... It's not uh, a Beijing talking point. It's a U.S. talking point yeah. that we pay a price. In other words, is it in our interest was it in America's interest for Tsai Ing-wen to reject the 92 consensus? I would argue 
Good cross-strait relations, increased economic integration, a better Taiwan economy is in America's no, interest. No, I think that's a fair and point. And that when it's rejected, that's not a Beijing talking point, it's an American well, talking Well, it's point. also a Beijing talking point, but, but I, that doesn't, doesn't mean it can't irrelevant. be. Can't, no, it can't mean, it doesn't mean it can't be an American talking point as well. So I agree, I will agree, that if she had accepted it, that we would have had a better situation and it would have been in our interest. I still think the Chinese distrust of the DPP and her was such yep. that it would have been very hard to get back to the Ma Young days uh, earlier. Yep. I think you still would have had a problem. And she has tried to send signals, in my view, that we could try to find some other formula. She has to protect herself against the deep green. And so I think she went about as far as she could. I, yes, I would like to have seen her do uh, accept the 92 consensus, but I understand why she tried to maneuver in a different way. And I think for the Chinese to cut off all communication and to squeeze Taiwan and not to try to explore a possible alternative formula is the Chinese fault. Yeah, well, after she gave that inaugural address, my, what I conveyed to the Chinese is they should declare victory and say this is, this is good, this is acceptable, right. and just move ahead on that basis, yeah. but obviously they didn't. By the way, on, on Taiwan, the Chinese, but what they're doing in Hong Kong. Well, that was my uh, next question, uh, yeah. <laughs> Removing any chance that the people in Taiwan who don't want reunification anyway certainly are not going to accept a one country, two systems policy. So uh, it seems to me that China's strategic goal in Taiwan is reunification. And they defeat that by what they're doing in Hong Kong, because nobody's going to buy one country, two systems. And its tactical goal is to defeat Tsai Ing-wen in the next election. And I think they're helping her get reelected by what they're doing in Hong Kong. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, how do you think Hong Kong plays out? You have any view of? Does the, are we <coughs> seeing a, a replay of what happened in 2003, where the demonstrations were so? Uh, immense that the Beijing decided that they would not amend the security law in, in Hong Kong and the chief executive then soon stepped down. No, we're not going to see that. <coughs> Carrie Lam has already come out in the last day or so saying she's going to go ahead with the extradition law, which is what prompted uh, these demonstrations, which are as big as 2003. It worked then, but Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong has been going down a slippery slope in terms of its autonomy and Chinese pressure, and this just shows it. In 2003, these demonstrations stopped legislation. 2019, equally big, uh, going to have no effect. My final question, only because we're such great friends do I ask this question. Do you wish you spoke Chinese? Yes, <laughs> but I have to tell you why I, I don't. Xie <laughs> xie, <laughs> xie xie. <laughs> Would you have been a better ambassador? Yes, although it's pretty tough to be any better than I was. But <laughs> let, let me explain why That's I don't. That's what speak, I say. <clears throat> let me explain why I don't speak Chinese. I was in the Foreign Service. My wife was born in Shanghai. We wanted to get married. In those days, I don't know what the rule is now, but you had to get permission to marry a foreign citizen. It would have been true of, of, uh, for security reasons, among others, and it would have been true if she was from Argentina or. Dubai and so on. Uh, so uh, it was so sensitive for the State Department's view, even though she wasn't a security risk, that she had all her relatives in China except her immediate family. And her father worked for a Taiwan government-owned company. So they said, you can't uh, work on Chinese affairs in your career if you marry this woman. So make a choice. And I said, look, I can find other countries. I can't find another girl like this. <laughs> so seriously, I never thought I'd work on China. So I didn't try to learn the language. And I was fortunate to join Kissinger on the secret trip and get involved in China the rest of my life. I tried to learn the language. I'm really good at written languages, but terrible in speaking. So I never, you can't learn Chinese a few hours a week. Now I have to top that off with the examination my wife went through in order to pass the test so she could become my wife. She was interviewed by a GS-15 named Mr. Zlok. I've never forgotten his name. And so we go into his office. And the first thing he says to make everybody relax, he says, now I want you to know that this is an extremely important interview, that if you don't pass this interview, Betty Bao, her name, uh, you can't marry 
uh, Winston because you can go to the president and I, I got the final say. So that really sort of made us all relax. <laughs> <laughs> they asked me to leave the room. So two hours later, she comes out. And I asked how it went. She said, well, some of the questions are rather difficult. First question she got from Zluck was, who is Vardish Fisher? Now, I'm sure you all know. Of course, he's a well-known Southwestern author. But anyway, that was his first question. Second question, name the offensive line of the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> Third question, uh, your boss is coming home for dinner, and he wants a death in the afternoon cocktail. How do you make a death in the afternoon <laughs> cocktail? Please name the original 13 colonies in the order they became part of America. Uh, so this was the kind of question she got. And then the final question, of course, was, what are you going to do if I turn you down? She said, my, my friend here, Winston, can get another job. He can't get another girl like me. So, <laughs> so in any event, that's why I didn't learn Chinese. <laughs> By the way, if you have not read Betty Balord's books, you are missing something. They are truly fabulous. Unlike mine, they're bestsellers. You know. That's right. But the, after, uh, after today, this th will th be this a bestseller. This will become a bestseller. Um, let me open the floor to, to questions and right in front. Thank you, Steve. So in the current environment, I think there's the US <clears throat> I speak pretty loud, so is that okay? Try it. Okay. Put it up close to your face. <coughs> Can everyone hear me? No. Okay. Go ahead. Or? Yes. Sure. So, uh, in the current environment, the U.S. and China uh, relationship is not in, in its best terms. Now, that's as a result of the uh, current trade war, tariffs, among other key issues. I think President Trump said it best. The reason why we're talking to China, or talking to China, bringing them to the, the negotiating table, is because of the tariffs in place. That sort of reaffirmed that recently with the Mexican, with the, the issues of the migrants flooding the, uh, the, 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 the southern borders. Once Trump mentioned about tariffs, they just flew their planes to the US to talk to the Trump administration. With that said, with that said is there better negotiating, with that said, is there better negotiating tactics or strategy other than tariffs? Because tariffs, obviously, it's, it's a loss, loss, cost, but it's going to bring a lot of attention Look, I did give credit to Trump for getting the Chinese attention generally <clears throat> and getting America's attention, but I also pointed out why there's a danger of his handling it in a blunderbuss way. Uh, I think uh, I, I personally would have done the following with the Chinese economic, and I w welcome your views on this. First of all, we should go back and join the TPP. It's not going to happen, but that, that was tremendous in terms of many countries' leverage on China, trying to engage China in a more constructive economic structure uh, and geopolitical advantages. Secondly, we should rally our allies for, uh, instead of picking fights with them so we'd have multilateral pressure on China. We do seem maybe inching in that direction with postponing Mexico and Canada tariffs and the European autos. So maybe we'll get our act together so we can all uh, pressure China, because they have grievances. It's not just, uh, not just us. But thirdly, I'm no expert in this. I know it's hard to identify what's a state-owned enterprise and what isn't. But I would have directed my tariffs at the state-owned enterprises alone, because they get the most subsidies. They tend to steal the most intellectual property. And they're not good for China over the long run in terms of their market economy. So I would have been more selective. And then I would have raised the issue of reciprocity in terms of investment in this country and security screening. So I think there are better ways to do it across the board tariffs, because that also removes our leverage. A lot of business people are nervous about the impact on our economy. Now, we have certain advantages, because our economy is doing very well, and China's beginning to slow down. So yes, he gets credit for getting their attention. I would have done it in a different way. And again, as we both said, the real issue here is not trade balances and tariff, but some of these other issues. Hmm. Right here. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm Tansi from NYU, a uh, student of uh, NYU University uh, from China. Uh, did you watch or hear about the Liu uh, Xin's talk? It was uh, Fox News Trish Rigan. Uh, do you, do you know that? I, I, I gather it was a debate, but I didn't see it. 
It wasn't much of a debate. I saw it. <laughs> it, was, sorry, it was quite I, I, polite. I not, comment. I didn't see it. So. Not much. They're going to do it again, apparently. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That's good. It wasn't much to it. It was 10 minutes of kind of like a few comments. Not, conversation. Yeah, not, not much. Uh, no, it's okay. <laughs> With woman right here? Yeah. Thank you. Um, the negativity Please identify yourself. Oh, Coco, KJ. So the negativity towards China and anything related to China is spreading from tariffs to technology to capital market to education. So it's, go, it's going on and on. <clears throat> so what is your read of the situation? Is it going, where is it heading to? Well, that gets to what we were discussing earlier of overreaction. I do think there's probably some security challenges from, for example, Huawei in certain areas, because Chinese uh, companies are supposed to deal with their government and help them and give them information. So you can see why there's suspicion in some of our key security areas. But does that mean cutting off Huawei completely? I don't think so. I'm not an expert. Uh, the other areas you mentioned, education and so on, it's, it's really what we were discussing before. I think we have some legitimate concerns, but I, I do agree with Steve, particularly on students and scientists, that we're just defeating our own purposes in terms of having skills here, not to mention uh, good relations, uh, by having this across-the-board approach. So I can't tell you how far this is going to go. I, I will say that uh, in order to improve our relations in general, the best thing we could do is replace the leaders of both countries. <laughs> I'm serious. They're both, they're both dangerous. Uh, and that, I don't think that's going to happen. The next best thing, that should get me into some trouble, I guess. <clears throat> the next, the next best thing. I don't think thing, this video is going to make it to China. <laughs> well, I, I said we got to get rid of Trump as well, you know, <clears throat> because the Chinese are behaving badly and uh, Trump is behaving badly. So, and the Chinese under Xi are particularly behaving badly. Uh, <clears throat> the next best thing, frankly, to, to get to that issue of how we might stop that trend as well as stabilize the relationship. Also, it's not going to happen, but I would like to see it happen, namely that the leaders of the countries, and given the leaders, we're not talking about Kissinger and Joe and Lai here, should have a discussions in which we have this kind of conversation, a strategic framework for our policy. The US would say we genuinely are not trying to contain you or decouple you we can live with and we feel we can compete with your rise as a power. Uh, secondly, in terms of your influence on the global stage, you deserve more seats at the table along with other developing countries. And you have a right to try to reform some of the system, but you don't have a right to overthrow long-held international norms and values and destroy it. As long as you're a responsible stakeholder, uh, we welcome your participation. And in the Asia-Pacific, you have legitimate geographic and security concerns. There's room for both of us in the Pacific community, and we recognize you deserve a larger role in your home region. The Chinese, in turn, would say, our goal is not preeminence, but shared responsibility, shared leadership. We do want to change parts of the system. We deserve more influence, but we're not going to overthrow its basic norms. And in the Asia-Pacific, we're not trying to drive the U.S. out of the Asia-Pacific. There's room for both of us in the Pacific community. That kind of conversation would have been possible with leaders like Kissinger and Zhou Enlai. And of course, it was a different era then. It's not possible today. So I think the only possible solution is to sort of manage the problems, seek out where we can cooperate, where we still can, <clears throat> whether it's on uh, anti-piracy uh, or pandemics or, or certain areas of non-proliferation, uh, terrorism, uh, there are areas where we can uh, still have some cooperation. And then we just have to manage and kick down the road some of the more fundamental problems until the situation uh, gets more stabilized. So that, I think, would help to stabilize that issue. But it's, I'm afraid I'm pretty pessimistic about that happening for the near term. 
given that summary, I nominate you to be the new head of policy planning. <laughs> oh, Secretary, of <laughs> Secretary of State would work. Margo is signaling me that we are out of time. Um, and we are, as now that I look at my, because Jan would yell if I looked at my iPhone, so I didn't. Um, Wynn will stay around to autograph this book. It's for sale outside, but please join me in thanking Wynn, not only for a great program, but for all he's done for this country over such a long time. <laughs>